right, it is good to be back. Like Donovan said, although we had a great, uh, great weekend, really enjoyable. If any of you are ever needing to make deeper connections and deeper fellowship with a few people, I encourage you to serve at Fort Hill for a team retreat. You somehow get to know the guys you work with uh, really, really well. And if you want to have a great time, I suggest you invite Donovan to go with you and work with Donovan. You, you will have a fantastic time. Right, Jackie? <laughs> Clay and I had a, she said, yeah. Clay and I had a great time uh, uh, with Donovan. He made a lot of fun. Well, we are in part number five of a six-part series we're doing on the subject of evil. And we talked in week one about the problem of evil and where it came from and uh, what caused evil and what are we supposed to do about evil, all those thoughts. And then we have spent the last three weeks, and tonight will be the fourth, talking about the restraints that God has placed into the world, into a broken world, to restrain or hold back evil as a result of the sin of mankind. And then if you come back next week, we will finish our series on evil to talk about how God is going to ultimately resolve the problem of evil. We'll see in 2 Peter chapter 3 when the evil works of the world will be exposed on the day that he returns and finally done away with and will dwell in a world without evil. It's a, uh, that's the basis of the Christian hope that we're looking forward to. But though, uh, thus far, we've talked about, first of all, the problem of evil. And we've said, first of all, what is evil? And Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 is the simplest place to see what evil really is. Evil encompasses a lot of things. It manifests itself in a lot of ways. But at its root, at its, root it's defined as the opposite of that which is good. Or the opposite of that which God wants or God's will. And so in Isaiah 5 and verse 20, when the prophet said, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. They are the opposite of each other. And we ask ourselves also, not just knowing what evil is, that it's the opposite of what God wants, what is good, but we also said, where did it come from? In Genesis chapter 3, we remember that story that's so famous of Eve and then Adam, that, that evil is a result of mankind rebelling against the plain instruction and teaching of God, how the world is supposed to work. And we also see in Genesis chapter 3 that it wasn't just human rebellion at play that brought evil into the world, but there's also a force beyond humanity. There's a force, an evil force, principalities and powers, Paul would call it, the prince of the darkness of the air, he would call Satan as well. Satan shows up in the form of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And his one objective... This is how evil gets sown into the world. His one objective is to deceive people into thinking that following God will not lead you to the best life possible. That's his one goal. His goal is to undermine the goodness of God, to convince you that God is far and not near, to convince you that God is not out for your best benefit, for your best good. And at the same time, he convinces you that you are way smarter than God. And if he can just convince the world through manipulation and lying and deceiving, because he has no power over your brain. He has no power over your limbs. But, all he, but what he does have the ability to do is to lay out a very deceitful idea for you to say, hmm, that sounds kind of interesting. That might be true. And to buy that and then to follow him. And that is the, where evil really came from. And so we asked, well, how do we deal with evil? And we said that we are to 
engage. Um, we are to hope in the promises of a world to come without evil, so we have endurance. We are to engage a world of injustice and evil and fight against it as much as possible. Jesus prayed and taught us to pray that we should say, God, let your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And we're supposed to participate in that prayer, that we need as much of God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. We should be participants in that. And the third thing we said is that we need to engage the restraints that God has put in place to hold evil at bay while we live in a broken world waiting for the world to come. Now that first restraint we talked about was the human conscience. The human conscience. The second was the family. The family. And the third was civil authority. Those three restraints God has placed into the world to hold evil at bay. And I'm confident that it has occurred to you that each of these are under serious attack all the time. Not just in our place and time in history or in our country or in our culture. The human conscience, the family, and civil authority have always been under attack. You might notice also a progression of the targets and the intensity of the attack of each one. For many years, there's been a strong attack, especially right now, um, against the conscience, against the human conscience. Meaning this, that there has been a concerted effort to help alleviate all feelings of guilt without ever changing people's behaviors. The, the psychological world, the, the social world that, that we live in is constantly trying to alleviate people's overwhelming sense of guilt without really having to change people's behavior, people's lifestyle. And so we're constantly trying to say things like, here's a few quotes I came across, like for instance, guilt is a destructive and ultimately pointless emotion. That's a modern psychologist that would say that guilt is just completely pointless. Interesting, right? Or guilt is a cancer. Guilt will confine you. Guilt can torture you. And guilt will destroy you. Guilt is a thief. And so we're seeing that there's been quite an attack on the human conscience that tells us when things are right and wrong, good and bad. Uh, we need to listen to that. Number two, we've seen people uh, certainly attack the central core of the family. And this is not just the modern redefinition of marriage that we're experiencing in this place and time, but it's been for the last several years, the undermining of the family unit from those that think that family or, or marriage is not important to things like in the 80s, like no cause divorce, where you can just divorce for any reason. Little by little, the family unit has been eroding in our culture. And so fathers have come under attack. The, the role of the father Watch most uh, modern sitcoms and the role of the father is not a competent, respectful, uh, humble servant leader, right? They don't portray that kind of guy in the, in the TV shows because that doesn't really sell. But what they usually portray is the buffoon who is mocked and ridiculed by his criticizing wife. And everyone laughs about it. But little by little, we're teaching men that leadership is just acting like a fool. And then your wife just picks on you and then that's how marriage goes. And that's not what we see in scripture fewer and fewer children are knowing the blessing of being raised and reared in a loving home with both father and mother who serve God and so the family's under attack and now more than ever we're having a growing attitude that civil authority is not something that's necessary it's oftentimes being ridiculed and treated with contempt in fact those that think civil authority is bad are oftentimes considered to be heroes and that increasingly is causing much problem in our culture. So the human conscience, the family, 
and civil authority are being undermined. And when we disdain and dismantle, disarm the restraints that God has put into our culture, into our society, society has a self-destructive nature to it. There's a problem there. Evil ultimately will find its way to reign. So into this darkness, kind of a heavy way to start, but into this darkness comes the fourth and final restraint against evil. And the fourth and final restraint I want to talk to you uh, talked about tonight is the message of God. I call it the Bible. But I'm not just talking about the book and the pages. What I'm talking about is the actual message that it contains. You know, what's interesting we see in Scripture is that we actually see examples in Scripture uh, in the past of God directly himself intervening and restraining people from evil actions. Like in Genesis chapter 20, when God restrained Abimelech, the foreign Gentile king, from touching Abraham's wife, Sarah. Remember, Abraham said, this is my sister, and he took the wife, and he just, you know, okay, and he took the sister and thought, and then God restrained him. In verse 6, it says, God affirms to Abimelech in a dream that he had kept him from sinning. He did that because Abimelech acted in good conscience, which is a side note to say, by the way, this is an affirmation that God did design the conscience to restrain evil because the king acted in a good conscience. And so he appealed to his conscience as evidence that he did no wrong to Abraham. And he gave him back and said, please leave. In Exodus 34, God commanded the men of Israel to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for feasts three times a year. And in verse 24, he promised them that none of the neighboring nations would covet their land or want their land while they were attending the feast in Jerusalem. God promised, I won't let that happen. He restrained those nations. We know that they wanted their land back. You know, the Israelites came in and took their land and established their nations. And he said, when you come into Jerusalem, you can go there without worrying because God will restrain them from coveting the land and wanting it back. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 25, God used Abigail to keep David from sinning by killing Nabal. In verse 34, David acknowledged it when he said, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, has held me back. So we see God involving himself to restrain people from evil directly, but we also flip that coin over to the other side, and we notice that there are times when God withdraws himself from restraining people and from, from suppressing evil, and evil actually happens. Sometimes we see that in the phrase in the Bible is used this way, where God hardened hearts, like Pharaoh. During, you know, remember when Joseph goes down to Egypt, and then sometime later, there's a Pharaoh that rises up, the, the ruler of Egypt, who doesn't know Joseph. And he's a good example of that. When those restraints were removed, then evil resided in the heart of Pharaoh, and sin and evil was given free reign. When Abraham was traveling through Canaan, God told him that that land would be for his descendants. But he said to him, he was not ready to give it to him immediately. He wasn't ready to give it to his nation immediately. He said it this way, because, quote, the, the nations that were in the land of Canaan at that time, their cup of iniquity was not yet full. God was drawing back and letting their sin, letting them live in their fullness of their iniquity. He wasn't holding them back. And 400 years later, he brought Abraham's descendants back to that land in order to accomplish that, to let their sin fill up. 
In Joshua chapter 11, it says this, Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all at battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened the heart to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He let their cup of iniquity fill. He drew back, didn't restrain those nations from sinning. He just let them go on the way that they would go, and he drew back. And then when Israel came, they received their punishment. We see this really played out in its theological thoughts in Romans chapter 1 when Paul is probably drawing on many of these stories that I'm sharing with you tonight. In Romans chapter 1, when he talks about the wrath of God, the wrath of God coming towards those who oppose God. And three times we see the wrath of God, what it really means. It says three times that God handed them over. God gave them over to what they wanted. It's like C.S. Lewis so famously said that you either say to God, thy will be done, and you follow him, or God will eventually, at the end of your life, say to you, thy will be done. The thing you've wanted, life without him, was what you'll get. And so in Romans chapter 1, we see three times that God gave them over to what they wanted, to sexual impurity, to shameful lusts, and to a depraved mind still seems to be happening today. So here we see both sides of that coin where God would restrain evil himself and then God would let people go and let, the, let evil have its reign. But one of the ways that God uses, that, that God uses to keep that from happening is through the influence and the effect of his word being in society, in culture. His word has a restraining effect on evil. That influence is designed, the, his word is designed to produce a group of people who have been called out from society of this world of darkness and chaos and sin and evil and to come in and create a counter-cultural people of peace, fellowship, and harmony. This is to be a place where evil does not reign where dissension does not happen, where conflict and criticism and, and, and hatred and anger does not bubble to the surface, but in fact, we become a place under the influence of God's word where we have per, uh, peace, harmony, and fellowship and grace with each other, where we give each other the benefit of the doubt, where we trust each other, where we care for each other, and when someone is off base or to the side somewhere, we lovingly want them to come back. And we care for them and we create a culture like that. And that has been what we call in Scripture the church. God's Word calls on His followers to honor all three of the restraints. The conscience. God calls on the church to honor the conscience, the family, and civil authority. And the church teaches and encourages all Christians to submit to God's teachings on all of those. But the message that Jesus Christ brought is radically different than what most people, the Word, God's Word, is radically different from what most people today have come to believe about it. You see, the world, perhaps even um, a section or a majority of Christians might even think that the message of Jesus that He came to bring was a message of an immense tolerance and complete acceptance. That seems to be kind of in vogue about Jesus today, that, that he is just like this prophet of peace, that he's a, a messenger of harmony, and what he came to preach and to teach was that we all should just figure out ways to get along and just care for each other and have tolerance and full acceptance. And it may come as a shock to some, maybe even here tonight, 
that Jesus' message was not intended just to produce tolerance. It wasn't. In fact, his message was intended to bring every single person to repentance. Repentance. And through repentance, those that come through the path of repentance will have peace, grace, mercy, understanding with each other. Matthew chapter 3, he said, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, Jesus, when he had heard that John had been put in prison, returned to Galilee, and from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close to us. Meaning, entrance into the kingdom, this place where there's mercy and grace and love and acceptance, comes at the door of repentance. The message of Jesus is a, the, the word of God is a call to all mankind to actually repent, to change. There's a particular in, incident in Jesus' life that a lot of critics like to bring up. Uh, it's the story, uh, when we talk about tolerance and acceptance, the story of uh, the w woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. You remember that story? Uh, the woman was caught in adultery. She was dragged half naked out of the place and brought by the, by the leaders and to Jesus. And they say, okay, the law says she needs to be stoned to death, but what do you say? And they're setting up a scenario in which Jesus cannot win. He cannot win. And so you know, them playing on the fact that they think he's going to preach a message of tolerance and acceptance. This man accepts sinners. He eats with sinners. He forgives prostitutes. You know, they, they were going to expecting him to fail. And Jesus, you know, stoops down, writes in the sand, and they keep questioning him. And finally, he says, the person who does not have sin, let that person cast the first stone at her. And little by little, from the oldest to youngest, they walk away. And there's two really important things we've got to remember. The reason Jesus could say that is not just because he had a disregard for the law, but because he knew that he would be eventually, soon enough, taking the punishment for that sin. That sin did not go unpunished of that woman. He hung on the cross for it. But secondly, you remember what Jesus told her uh, after the people left, and he said, where, where are your accusers? He said to her, go and sin no more. So the principle to take away is not just um, sin, you know, we just are tolerant of sin. The message is repentance. The true message of the gospel, when you really understand not just the words that Jesus said and the teachings that he brought forth, but his actual living out of the gospel should be the clearest demonstration to us that the word of God is a message of repentance that calls all people to repentance. You know, in contrast to common belief, the gospel message is not one of just full acceptance of sin. That's not what the message of the gospel says. In fact, I would argue that if you look deeply into the gospel, you would not see a God who tolerates and accepts sin. At the core of the gospel is the story of the cross, right? And at the cross, you do not see a God speaking a message that says, I tolerate and accept and will bring into my presence those that are sinful because I'd rather have them in my presence sinful than away from me. That's not the message that you see. In fact, in the cross, we see the message that God is willing to go so far to punish sin because he wants us in his presence but not with sin. The message of the cross is a message of actual punishment for sin. 
It's a message that God can't tolerate sin, so much so that he would be willing to allow his own son to take the punishment for it. Do you see how far God would go to make sure sin is not tolerated but punished? He would go to the extent that he would allow his own son to take the punishment. No, the message of the cross is not a message of just tolerance and acceptance. It's a message that God cannot tolerate sin, and every sin deserves to be punished. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, we see the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all, that sh- but all come to repentance. So the message of the gospel is God's final and ultimate means of dealing with evil in society. Because it is a call to repentance. Jesus commissioned his apostles right before he left when he was telling them what to preach in Luke 24 when he said that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What happens when you preach the gospel is you actually should be preaching a message of repentance. And when we preach a gospel void of repentance, our gospel has no power to actually change people's lives. It's placebo. That's all it is. It makes people think that they feel better for a moment, but it doesn't really change their life. So God in his infinite wisdom has put into place measures to withhold or keep at bay or restrain evil in our society. He gave the use of a conscience which has guilt in it to make us hold back the evil within ourselves. He's given us the family, the influence of a father and a mother rearing children under the teaching of God's word to teach what is right and wrong. And he's given us as a gift civil authority to reward those who do good, to uphold citizens that do well, and to punish those who do evil, to hold back evil in society. But ultimately, he gave us the message of the gospel. It wasn't just the words of Jesus, it was the work of Jesus. That God doesn't tolerate sin. And when you look at the cross, you realize that he doesn't tolerate sin so much that he's willing to punish his own son so that we could have forgiveness of those sins. And when you look at that, when you realize what he's done, it should actually produce in us, as Paul called it, a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow. He's talk, uh, in that text, he talks about worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow never leads to life. In fact, it leads to death. Worldly sorrow is the sorrow that you experience when you've done something wrong and you see no hope at the end of it, no light at the end of the tunnel. And the distinguishing factor of worldly sorrow, two things is this. One, there is no hope. So when you feel sorrow and you have no hope in your sin, that nothing can get better, oftentimes you're dealing with worldly sorrow, and here's why. So much worldly sorrow has to do with us being sorry for what we've lost from ourselves. Our reputation, an opportunity, maybe an opportunity for advancement or something like that, where we've lost something for ourselves. But godly sorrow is sorrow over the pain that we've caused God the diminishing of his name, the dishonoring of his word. And when you have that kind of sorrow, that sorrow reminds you of the cross. That yes, God does not like sin. In fact, he won't tolerate it, but he has punished sin. And that sorrow produces what Paul said, godly sorrow produces repentance. And repentance leads to salvation. So just pause for a moment. We'll wrap up tonight and think about this. Let me ask you something to consider. If you live in a society that continues to ignore conscience, that right and wrong doesn't really matter, it's just subjective, that is eroding its family, that is rebelling against civil authority, 
and it's ridiculing churches and their message, what's going to happen? And the question then is, if we think about that, what can we do? Well, I think we must first and foremost be willing and ready to preach, teach, and speak unashamedly the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to first put on display that the gospel has changed our life. So we are those that are not afraid but willing to repent. And not just repent in secret, but repent openly. When we've wronged somebody, we say we're sorry. We admit this was wrong and I should have done right. And we show people that we have a conscience that's been convicted and a repentance of a life and a Savior that forgives. We show people that. And we live it amongst ourselves. And we call all of God's people to influence not just the church, but the world in which they live to engage the restraints that God has given us. Salvation is not from armies, political allies, economic strength, even education or things like that. That's not where salvation will be found. Salvation is found in the preaching, teaching, and practicing the message of gospel that calls us to repent. This will reinstate all the restraints that God has given us and give us the hope of a world someday when there won't be evil anymore. That's the Christian hope, that we're going to live in a world that is completely perfect as people who are finally the perfect people we've always wanted to be. That's the message of the Christian hope, and the gospel is the, most, is the surest thing we have, that we will have restraint from evil and a longing for that hope. So if you don't have the gospel, maybe you haven't understood the gospel, maybe the message of the gospel and God's word hasn't penetrated your heart, maybe it's not really calling you to repentance, maybe you've had more of a worldly sorrow and not a godly sorrow and you need to be led to repentance we certainly want to help anyone here who needs to repent be led to repentance let's stand and sing